Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. To all that is chaotic in you, let there come silence. Let there be a calming of the clamoring, a stilling of the voices that have laid their claim on you, that have made their home in you that go with you even to the holy places, but will not let you rest, will not let you hear your life with wholeness or feel the grace that fashioned you. Let what distracts you cease. Let what divides you cease. Let there come an end to what diminishes and demeans and let depart all that keeps you in its cage. Let there be an opening into the quiet that lies beneath the chaos, where you find the peace you did not think possible and see what shimmers within the storm. On this day before the winter solstice, I'd like to share with you one of the poems that's touching my heart the most this holiday season. It's called A Blessing for the Longest Night by Jan Richardson. All throughout these months, as the shadows have lengthened, this blessing has been gathering itself, making ready, preparing for this night. It is practiced walking in the dark, traveling with its eyes closed, feeling its way by memory, by touch, by the pull of the moon, even as it wanes. So believe me when I tell you, this blessing will reach you. Even if you have not light enough to read it, it will find you, even though you cannot see it coming. You will know the moment of its arriving by the release of the breath you have held so long, a loosening of the clenching in your hands of the clutch around your heart, a thinning of the darkness that had drawn itself around you. This blessing does not mean to take the night away, but it knows its hidden roads, knows the resting spots along the path, knows what it means to travel in the company of a friend. So when this blessing comes, take its hand, get up, set out on the road you cannot see. This is the night when you can trust that any direction you go, you will be walking toward the dawn. So may it be. Psychiatrist, author, and Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl believed 
that our suffering is healed by finding meaning in our lives. Frankel identified three ways that people frequently make meaning of their lives. One, we make meaning through our actions, work, and creations. Two, we create meaning through experiences of beauty and love. And three, we find meaning in the ways that we can, with courage, move through moments of unavoidable suffering. As a healthcare worker in 2020, I feel like I've had my fair share of meaning-making tools one and three. I love my work, and every day I, and really all of us, move with courage through unavoidable suffering. So the meaning-making tool that I am giving myself to wholeheartedly this holiday season is number two, experiencing beauty and love. And I am achieving this by having the most fabulous and fragrant Christmas tree possible. Every evening when I come home from the hospital, my Christmas tree is here to greet me. It's decked out in colored lights, homemade glitzy ornaments, and topped with a giant bow. I have loved many Christmas trees in my life. The trees I cut down with my family in Maine, the two-dimensional Christmas tree I drew and hung on the wall of my first apartment in Somerville, and of course, our Arlington Street Church mitten tree that I built each year with Carol Fisher and the children of our congregation, which is no small feat considering we never remember where we had put it, and each branch had to be placed in the base one at a time. This year, my Christmas tree feels deeply beautiful and meaningful. It is my light, my joy, and my creation in the midst of suffering that feels painfully unavoidable and avoidable. It's a reminder of all the trees I've loved before and all the people who've been beside me admiring the shining lights. In her poem, When I Am Among the Trees, Mary Oliver writes, Around me the trees stir in their leaves and call out, Stay a while. The light flows from their branches, and they call again. It's simple, they say. You too have come into the world to do this, to go easy, to be filled with light, and to shine. May we each experience beauty and love this holiday season, may we remember that we are the resilient ones who shine. In December of 1940, London was in the middle of the Blitz. In this dark chapter of World War II, German planes bombed British cities for 57 straight nights. Despite the mounting terror and devastation, Londoners were resolved that Christmas would carry on. They were so successful in finding creative ways to continue their holiday traditions in the face of wartime disruptions that this season has come to be fondly remembered as Blitzmas. Many families were separated and worrying constantly about evacuated children and loved ones fighting abroad. Since it wasn't safe to be home after dark, people decorated their air raid shelters and created community with their shelter mates. With the city under strict blackout orders, there were no Christmas lights in the streets, 
but Londoners enthusiastically decorated their homes and shops with the materials at hand. Newspaper cut into strips made delightful paper chains and all matter of garden greenery was used for trimming. Miniature Christmas trees were in high demand as they were perfectly sized for cellars and basements. Shopkeepers bravely hung tinsel across the front of shattered windows at their blasted out shops. The official palace Christmas card for 1940 features King George and Queen Elizabeth posing defiantly in front of a bombed out section of Buckingham Palace. Stringent wartime rationing inspired tremendous ingenuity. Families grew their own vegetables and carefully hoarded ingredients for months to make a festive Christmas dinner. Most gifts were homemade and came wrapped in newspaper or scraps of cloth. Outgrown sweaters were unraveled with their wool used to knit new scarves, hats, and gloves. 80 years later, Eric Caddy fondly remembers the wartime Christmases of his youth as the best ever, saying, the Tommy gun my father carved from firewood is still the greatest present I've ever received. Adults happily exchange chutneys and jams, as well as practical gifts, like homemade wooden dibbers for planting seeds and bulbs. The most popular Christmas present of 1940, soap. Music was, of course, a defining feature of the festive Blitzmas season. Londoners sang together in their air raid shelters. I love this quote from an article that ran in Time Magazine in December of 1940. Despite the bombs, life in the big London air raid shelters, where over one million people regularly spend the night, has become so standardized that many shelter Christmas parties are elaborate communal affairs with skits, dancing, and mass harmony singing. Families attended traditional Christmas pantomimes in record numbers, despite the challenges of staging these musical theater productions in wartime. Challenges that included, inclu challenges that included finding new venues as theaters were destroyed and positioning rooftop snipers to watch for bombers as children rehearsed below. Some of our most beloved Christmas standards were written during the war years and evoke the mix of melancholy, nostalgia, and resolve that marked the era, including White Christmas and I'll Be Home for Christmas. In the latter, a homesick soldier who was stationed overseas sings to his family, Christmas Eve will find me where the love light gleams, I'll be home for Christmas, if only in my dreams.
As we approach this COVID Christmas, I am so inspired by the spirit of Blitzmas. Despite the extraordinary danger and hardships, the British people forged a collective resolve to celebrate the essence of Christmas by reveling in the simple joys of beauty, music, giving, and community. They, creative, uh, they created a festive Christmas season that is still fondly remembered as the best ever. This spirit of creativity has important directives for all of us right now. Many of us are grieving being away from our loved ones this Christmas and unable to carry out our cherished traditions. But Christmas has not been canceled. May we draw inspiration from those who have gone before and demonstrated remarkable resilience in hard times. This holiday season, let's embrace the deeper meaning of Christmas and offer a life-affirming yes to peace on earth and love for each other. We are all in this together. Merry Christmas. I love you. One act of kindness that befell British writer Bernard Hare in 1982 changed him profoundly. Then a student living just north of London, he tells the story to inspire troubled young people deal with disruptions in their lives. This is what he says. The police called at my student hovel early evening, but I didn't answer as I thought they'd come to evict me. I hadn't paid my rent in months. But then I got to thinking, my mom hadn't been too good and what if it was something about her? We had no phone and mobiles hadn't been invented yet. So I had to nip down the phone box. I rang home to Leeds to find that my mother was in the hospital and not expected to survive the night. Get home, son, my dad said. I got to the railway station to find I'd missed the last train. A train was going as far as Peterborough, but I would miss the connecting Leeds train by 20 minutes. I bought a ticket and got on anyway. I was a struggling student and didn't have money for a taxi all the way, but I had a screwdriver in my pocket and a bunch of skeleton keys. I was so desperate to get home that I planned to nick a car in Peterborough, hitchhike, steal money, something, anything. I just knew from my dad's tone of voice that my mother was going to die that night and I intended to get home if it killed me. Tickets please, I heard as I stared blankly out of the window at the passing darkness. I fumbled for my ticket and gave it to the guard when he approached. He stamped it, but then he just stood there looking at me. I'd been crying, had red eyes, and must have looked afraid. You okay, he asked. Of course I'm okay. Why wouldn't I be? What's it got to you to do with you in any case? You look awful, he said. Is there anything I can do? You could get lost and mind your own business, I said. That'd be a big help. I wasn't in the mood for talking. 
He was only a little bloke and he must have read the danger signals in my body language and tone of voice, but he sat down opposite me anyway and continued to engage me. If there's a problem, I'm here to help. That's what I'm paid for. I was a big guy in my prime, so I thought for a second about physically sending him on his way, but it somehow didn't seem appropriate. He wasn't really doing much wrong. I was going through all stages of grief at once, denial, anger, guilt, withdrawal, everything but acceptance. I was a bubbling cauldron of emotion and he placed himself in my line of fire. The only thing I could think of to get rid of him was to tell him my story. Look, my mom's in the hospital dying. She won't survive the night. I'm gonna miss the connection to Leeds at Peterborough. I'm not sure how I'm gonna get home. It's tonight or never. I won't get another chance. I'm upset. I don't feel like talking. I'd be grateful if you'd leave me alone, okay? Okay, he said, finally getting up. I'm sorry to hear that, son. I'll leave you alone. I hope you make it home on time. Then he wandered off down the carriage back the way he came. I continued to look out the window in the dark. 10 minutes later, he was back at the side of my table. Oh no, I thought, here we go again. This time I really am gonna push him down the train. He touched my arm. Listen, when we get to Peterborough, shoot straight off to platform one as quick as you like the Leeds train will be there. I looked at him dumbfounded. It wasn't registering. Come again, I said, is it late or something? No, it isn't late, he said defensively, as if he really cared whether trains were late or not. No, I've just radioed Peterborough. They're gonna hold the train up for you. As soon as you get on, it goes. Everyone will be complaining about how late it is, but let's not worry about that on this occasion. You'll get home and that's the main thing. Good luck and God bless. Then he was off down the train again. Tickets please, any more now? I suddenly realized what a top class, fully fledged doylem I was and I chased him down the train. I wanted to give him all the money from my wallet, my driver's license, my keys, but I knew he would be offended. I caught him and grabbed his arm. I, I just wanted to, I was suddenly speechless. It's okay, he said, it's not a problem. He had a warm smile and true compassion. He was a good man for its own sake and required nothing in return. I wish I had some way to thank you, I said. I appreciate what you've done. It's not a problem, he said. If you feel the need to thank me, the next time you see someone in trouble, help them out, that will pay me back. Tell them to pay you back the same way and soon the world will be a better place. I was at my mother's side when she died in the early hours of the morning. Even now, I can't think of her without remembering the good conductor on that late night train. And to this day, I won't hear a bad word said about the British rail. My meeting with the good conductor changed me from a selfish, potentially violent person into a decent human being, but it took time. I paid him back a thousand times since I tell the young people I work with and I'll keep doing so till the day I die. You don't owe me nothing, 
nothing at all. But if you think you do, I'd give the same advice the good conductor gave me. Pass it down the line. This is one of my favorite stories. During this holiday season, in this painful year, I hope you can find hope in both the narrator allowing himself to be helped and hope in the good conductor able to give. Whether for you, you need to accept some help or you have the energy to give. I hope you see the hope all the same and I hope you have a wonderful holiday. 27 years ago in Billings, Montana, a rock was hurled through five-year-old Isaac Schnitzer's bedroom window, which had been decorated with a menorah, a dreidel, a star of David, and happy Hanukkah. Billings police chief Wayne Inman said, if we do nothing in the face of an attack on our neighbors, then we're accepting it. The community response led by Margaret MacDonald was swift, defiant, and life-changing. Good people of all faiths put menorahs in their windows too. 10,000 menorahs. From that experience was born the Not In Our Town movement. Their core practices are respond quickly to the need and to people who are targeted, say, I'll walk with you. Make your position against hate broadly visible and don't back down. I thought of that story as I learned of this one. Last month, Chris Kennedy and his four-year-old daughter, Emily, strung twinkly white lights along the roof line of their house in Little Rock, Arkansas, and stationed an inflatable Christmas tree and a towering black Santa on the lawn next to a joyful, illuminated sign that says, Joy. The Kennedys received a racist note signed by Santa Claus that said in part, I am a Caucasian, white man to you and have been for the past 600 years. Obviously, your values are not that of the Lakewood area and maybe you should move to a neighborhood out east. Enraged and disheartened, Chris Kennedy posted a, a photo of the note to Facebook and filed a harassment report with the local police and a separate report with the post office. His wife, Itty, said, I wondered if this was the right environment to raise our daughter. Chris and Itty began receiving a torrent of horrified and outraged messages from their neighbors. Evan Blake, executive director of the Lakewood Property Owners Association, publicly condemned the incident and visited the Kennedys at their home to assure them that they are valued members of the Lakewood community. And then something magical happened. Paula Jones, who serves with Evan on the board of directors says, my first reaction was, where can I get one? She and her husband and two children put a black Santa on their lawn. Ben Keller and his wife were distraught. When we saw what happened to Chris, we knew we couldn't just stand by and not do anything. We instantly decided what better way to support him than getting our own Santa display. Chip Welsh, age 70, who has lived with his wife in Lakewood for 20 years said, 
that racism is not reflective of Lakewood and certainly not reflective of the kind of country I want to live in. We were all pretty concerned about it, and we decided it would be poetic for everyone to get a black Santa. This is the way it ought to be. And so slowly but surely, black Santas began popping up on the lawns of predominantly white Lakewood. So many neighbors have ordered black Santas that retailers are running low on supply. That's why Tim Janina and his wife are anxiously awaiting theirs. That letter is not what our neighborhood is about. He says there's no place for it, and we want to do everything we can to show support. For Kennedys, the overwhelming support has turned a devastating situation into a clear demonstration that the letter writer is an anomaly in their neighborhood. Chris says, the outpouring of love, support, and unity we're seeing from the community has been just incredible. People have been stopping by and honking. We've gotten cards, gifts, and letters from across the United States. Itty Kennedy adds, the outpouring of support made me realize that this is the perfect place to raise our daughter. At the end of the day, says Chris, what was meant for evil was flipped for good. We are showing that we are truly better together and united as one. Back in Billings, Montana, these words are still posted on a neighborhood sign. Not in our town. No hate, no violence. Peace on earth. Amen. And now for a benediction, I invite you to put your hands over your heart and namaste. I bow to the divine in you. Our benediction is from Anglo-American poet W.H. Auden's For the Time Being. And now... Let us allow Christmas to overtake us in all our haste and unpreparedness and renew the miracle of love in our lives. Let us keep this faith, beloveds, and pass it on. The service begins when the service ends. Bless your hearts. I love you. Amen. We wish you a Merry Christmas, we wish you a Merry Christmas, we wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Good tidings we bring to you and your King. Good tidings for Christmas and a Happy New Year. We wish a Merry Christmas, we wish you a Merry Christmas, we wish you a Merry Christmas, and a Happy New Year. Merry Christmas, everyone. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace.